So, Mary, we've been asking all our guests for one thing that doesn't appear on their resume or LinkedIn profile. And I'm intrigued. What's one thing that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile? Oh, that's a really good question, Dan. So I think I would probably say definitely doesn't show on my LinkedIn profile. I'm really into sewing. Before I went to uni, very nearly went and did a degree in textile art or something very much sewing related before I was persuaded not to do that and to do boring maths, which I don't regret at all, obviously, because I love my job. But I've still tried to keep up sewing. So yeah. And is this like creative things or is this like garments and stuff that's more practical? It's a bit of both. So at the moment, I've got a project on trying to recreate some art using kind of textiles, which is at very early stages. But mainly it's been like making dresses for nights out and that sort of thing. So I think I've got a hole in the pocket of my trousers, actually. (laughs) Yeah, easy. Five second job. (laughs) Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today on Investment Uncut, we're joined by special guest Nikki Matthews, a consultant in LCP's investment team. Nikki, welcome to the show. Thank you. Why don't you go ahead, Nikki, and just tell the listeners a little bit about your role at LCP. So I have a dual role at LCP where I split my time between research and client work. On the research side, I predominantly focus on alternative asset classes, meeting fund managers to assess whether the funds are suitable for our clients to invest in. And on the client side, I advise clients on strategy and manager selections. Great. And Nikki, before we get into the meat of today's discussion, what's one thing that people should know about you that they won't find on your LinkedIn profile? Keen singer outside of work. Oh, fantastic. What sort of stuff? Predominantly rock and soul. Wow. Wow. So are you you part of any singing groups? Solo. Solo. Oh, wow. Do concerts in my spare time. Fantastic. Well, you have to give us a link to uh, your next gig. Yeah. I'll consider. We'll put it in the show. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. So, Nikki, you wrote a piece, I think it was last year in our Vista Investment Magazine, around about behavioural finance. So do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about, about that piece and what you were sort of saying there? So I think people make investment decisions. So therefore, understanding people is very important. Yeah. And it's something I think that isn't sort of at the prominent when you're, you're thinking about it as a risk. Mm. Well, you might think that equity credit has risk, but actually the person allocating to those asset classes is the yeah. biggest risk in how they're thinking about those asset classes. So it's taking a step back to ensure that they're coming at it from a completely rational point of view, which people often aren't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. really? No, surely not. <laughs> and Nikki, what first got you kind of interested in this area? Why did you write the article? Why did you sort of do the research? So I did a course at university that spurred my interest on, but generally I've always had a very keen interest in psychology. So therefore, okay. read around behavioural finance as well. Okay. And you said the point a second ago about, about rational and not being rational, right? And I suppose that's at the heart of the issue here isn't it so what are a couple of things that you've seen or you've you've read about where this irrationality kind of really comes out in practice i think if you go back to 2008 and yeah. when sort of equity markets crashed i think mm-hmm. you'll see big differences between schemes or endowments that decided to rebalance their equity allocation back to whatever percentage they had decided and therefore 
did quite well following the crisis because obviously equities rebounded. And for example, schemes that didn't rebalance because perhaps they were scared to equity yeah. might further. Mm-hmm. And those investors suffered quite a bit, I think, five, ten years on. Yeah, so, uh, right. So just, just unpacking that then, I guess. So what have we got there? I suppose it's a question of fear is what's yeah. been driving the behaviour there, right? So fear leading to a, an irrational choice. Fear is probably one driver of an irrational choice, but mm-hmm. what would another driver be? What other sort of drivers do you see in behavioural finance? I think how you're feeling on the day could be a big one okay. in the sense of if you're listening to a presentation on either an asset class or an investment manager mm. and you happen to perhaps get along well with the person giving it yeah. and they do a good presentation, that might strongly influence your view of whether to invest, whereas actually I think you should be That obviously should play a role, but you should be thinking about it long term. So say, think about where you'd be two, three years down the line and what can happen to your investment rather than a decision based on how you're feeling on the day. Yeah, absolutely. Because we we see this all the time, right? We're we're appointing managers for our clients. Mm -hmm. And and so often you see the role of a good story and a good presentation, perhaps having a slightly outsized impact on on some of those decisions, right? I've sat in meeting with groups of clients where you can see that they're being or potentially at risk of being swayed by the good presentation, the good story. And you're sort of thinking, well, I researched this manager and that isn't how it comes across when we're sitting in the research room and really sort of grilling them. So I guess, how can investors protect themselves against that risk? So I think perhaps having two people present, then if you're in the group, not automatically giving sort of your view on whatever you've just seen, instead getting sort of an anonymous view, because people, therefore, you're less prone to be influenced by just one person I, I doubt the whole group would get along that's a really interesting point yeah and I suppose just just being aware of it is a good start right I mean I suppose if you're if you always try and be skeptical towards stories and you kind of little alarm in your head sort of goes off if you suddenly think oh hang on a second there's a story going here which is I suppose it's easy to say maybe hard to do isn't it but yeah, yeah. and at least knowing it's a start Interesting, though, as well, we're talking about here protecting against this risk by having more than one person in a group. We recorded a session already on groupthink and the dangers of that. So I guess, and again, in both cases, I guess it's the awareness piece that's the biggest protection. Yeah, and I think if you log down the decisions while you're allocating to an asset class or manager, that will help you immediately see, are these rational or are these how I feel? Yeah, well, exactly, because in in the piece we talked about earlier, I think you highlighted actually three really practical things that, Mm -hmm. that investors could do to try and to try and balance up against some of these behavioural issues. And one of them was this idea of the decision log, right? Yeah. So I think if you record your reasons for doing something over time, you can then refer back to that and assess whether you made the right choice at the time and whether that choice is still valid because conditions might have changed, the market might not be suited to whatever you did a few years ago. Yeah, and I suppose even just the act of writing them down and articulating it probably helps you see maybe where you've you've fallen victim to a story, right? I mean, exactly. if the only reason yeah. seems to be the story, then, then maybe perhaps you can, even at the time, can convince yourself that that's maybe not enough of a reason. Yeah. yeah. So another thing that, that seems to be related to that, then we often hear about is confirmation bias, right? Mm. So, and I guess that's where you sort of believe something's right and suddenly everything we see is confirming it, which means mm-hmm. we get very inclined to to believe it sort of even more strongly. So quite a difficult one. And I guess I've often seen people presenting, including investment managers, can use that to their advantage, I guess, right? Because if people sniff that there's already a belief in the room, they can play to that with confirmation bias and and get people on their Mm. side a bit more, right? Yeah, and I think that's a very interesting one because it applies to data, your view on something. You'll always be looking for data to confirm what you have thought on the subject matter. But also to people, if you start forming an opinion based on a person, then be looking for things to confirm that but you could be completely wrong 
or your opinion could change entirely when you find out something new about that person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess you're, uh, as well with the confirmation bias, you're ignoring things that mm. would disprove your view. Yeah, exactly. Right? So you miss that person, exhibit a trait that is against your yeah. perception of that yeah. person or investment, etc. Yeah, that seems like an exceptionally difficult one to get around because it really is influencing how you're perceiving the world. So yeah, you're kind of limited in how you can really deal with it. Okay, well, why don't we drill in a little bit more into some of the bit, some of the behaviours we tend to see in practice from investors and, and groups of investors around some of these. And I guess there's sort of two angles to this, right? There's the behaviours that we see in sort of normal times and then those behaviours we see in volatile times. And yeah. We're recording this today, sort of middle of March, when we're certainly seeing a lot of big swings in the market. And there's, I'm pretty sure there's no irrational behaviour going on at the moment. <laughs> the well, I did see an article this morning. I think the headline was something like, idiocy is 10,000 times more contagious than coronavirus. <laughs> and it's a silly article, but I think it makes a really valid point. And let's try and unpack it then. So what do we think we're seeing? We've already talked about fear a little bit. I suppose that's probably a factor in, in today's markets. Anything else, Nikki, that you'd say you think is influencing things when markets get particularly volatile? I'd say news bias in the sense of the way things are reported, which goes back to framing as well. So all you see in the news is, say, 300 and something people have died in this country. What you don't see is a much larger number of people die from many other diseases every day. So it's just that framing effect is causing panic and the other diseases aren't reported. Well, exactly. And the news bias, that is a big issue in financial markets generally, right? Mm -hmm. Because you go to any of the financial markets news channels and they're always going to be full of so many hundred points decline in the Dow today. This is down, Mm -hmm. this is up. And just Mm -hmm. that sort of literally second by second diet of of headlines and people commentating and saying things. And the problem is a headline doesn't actually have to be based on any data at all. It still has the same impact. Right, exactly, And investment markets, especially in equities, I guess, it's so easy to buy and sell equities for everyone, just professional investors, that you do see these huge swings based just on news yeah. and not necessarily underlying data. So news tends to be sort of 1% of people will die as opposed to 99% of people will survive, which is... Yeah, funny that, isn't it? it? I suppose people also, market falls get reported a lot more than market gains. Exactly. Right? I'm not sure the last time I saw a headline that said, Billions got wiped onto uh, <laughs> yeah. stock markets around the world, but it does tend to happen sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess that's all about the salience of news and negative events that mm. sort of somehow pierce through our consciousness and our psychology just a lot more and then mm. sort of mm. really affect us at mm. these sort of times. And then you kind of couple that with the, the fear piece mm. and you can start to see how you've got a really dangerous sort of combination sort of brewing up there. There's also, I guess, the decision of, do I make a decision to change what I'm currently doing when that's not what I'm currently doing. Is, yeah, is there exactly. a risk associated with that that somehow I look at in a slightly biased way? Yeah, there's two things there actually that I've heard about before. So one, I guess, is this concept of regret, which is just yeah. such a huge driver of human behaviour generally. Yeah. But then I guess there's the question of do you regret taking an action more or do you regret not taking an action more? Yeah, yeah. It's, that is interesting. And I've, we've had over the years clients have made decisions maybe it's changing a manager maybe it's changing an asset class and then they've three years down the line said can you tell us what the impact of that decision was three years ago and part of you thinks well yes I can give you the data and part of you thinks yeah does it matter and actually had you not made this decision three years ago maybe you'd have made a different decision two years ago and you just can't say that yes you would have been better off had you made that decision or not but Yes, definitely one that I see a lot with my clients is yeah. kind of danger the, of regret. The example of the action bias that I've heard before, and you probably heard it as well, is analysing penalty kicks in football. 
whereby uh, yeah. broadly the data supports that the kick is pretty much equally likely to go left, right or down the middle. And so the best strategy from a goalkeeping perspective ought to be to stay in the middle because mm. then you probably will save the ones in the middle. But, they, but the vast always... majority of keepers will dive left or right because yeah. there's a bias towards doing something. And if they yeah. stand still and it goes to the side, they look really stupid. Yeah. Whereas if they dive and get it wrong, then they don't kind of thing. right? Yeah. So I guess that's... Again, back to the quite relevant point now in that you it's hard to just sit there and do nothing mm. <laughs> because it feels like you're being a bit stupid. We're just mm. biased towards thinking that an action is better. But I guess we also see, I also see pension schemes thinking, do I want to be an outlier here? Yes, I want to do the right thing mm. for my pension scheme, yep. but do I want to be pioneering the first people to ever do this? And some schemes absolutely do. Or would I rather stay in a slightly more comfortable pack mm. of people? And I guess that plays into all of this sort of behavioural finance and... I don't want to be the outlier and look stupid, although I could be mm. the outlier and look great because I made the right decision yeah, mm. than anyone else. So, Nikki, just turning back to your article briefly, you had three key takeaways and we've talked about one of them, which was the decision log. Can you give us an overview of one of the other takeaways? So pre-mortem was one of them. Right. I.e. thinking about where you would be, say, two, three years down the line when you make an investment decision and analysing its performance when you're three years down the line versus today. So is it a good idea longer term versus just now? Okay. Yeah, and part of that is it's sort of thinking about trying to think about how it could go wrong and trying to come up with sort of bad situations, I guess, and sort of brainstorming that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And what's the so what's thinking behind it around why that is helpful then is it, it's sort of getting investors out of the current mindset and just trying to widen their their thinking, right? Is that sort of yeah, and it's also investors thinking round picture not just one right. sort of fact and considering all the elements that could come to it I think have you seen that used well Mary yeah and I think what that's making me think of is the kind of pre-making decisions so mm. there's the pre-mortem but there's also the kind of okay I'm thinking really rationally today if I get five times ahead of where I would expect to be in a year's time using extreme examples I think most people around a, a mm. group would say well of course I'll reduce risk if I'm on a longer term de-risking path for example if you get into that position in a year's time, it's quite emotionally difficult to make the decision. Mm. But today, everyone can rationally agree what the right thing to do is. Yeah. And yeah, so actually exactly. making the rational decision now so that you don't put yourself in the position of taking a risk that you aren't rational, I think is something that's really, really effective and I use with, with almost all of my clients, I think. Especially if there are different parties involved in that decision-making process because actually you can get everyone together making that decision and then you stick to it because it's already yeah. pre-made. Yeah, so sort of pre-commitment to certain decisions and what you're running through particular scenarios there, you're sort of saying if we're here, if equities are there or here, yeah. and then we do X, Y, Z sort of thing. Because yeah. I think it's very easy to say, oh, well, we don't know what the other factors in our decision will be in that point in time. Yeah, and, well, you know, is, of yeah, course, yeah. set everything in stone. But actually, again, having the sort of framework pre-agreed, I think just gives you that rational sort of line when you're yeah. making the decision. Well, it's back to stories, isn't it? Because whenever markets are up or down, there's always a story for why they're up, a story for why they're yeah. down, a story for why they might go up more or down more. Yeah. Whereas yeah. It, I guess take, trying to remove yourself away from that is mm. helpful in yeah. getting the more rational side out. And potentially even with manager decisions, I've chosen a manager and I think this is the performance they're going to get for mm. me. If they get it, and maybe you expect it over five years, if they get it over three actually rationally maybe you should sell after three years but mm. it's so so difficult to sell a manager when they've just done really well for you mm-hmm. yeah well then it's a good actually let's come on to that then because i think that's a really interesting area of, of behavioral finance generally isn't it and obviously one that, that you've seen a lot nikki with decisions around hiring and firing yeah. managers right so i think we have seen quite frequently if a manager's done very well for say five years as mary said and then suddenly they start underperforming that might be a good time to sell them it might be that actually they're just going through a rough period and therefore you should hold them on. But 
the key is just to think rationally about what you should do versus mm. a sudden decision. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And as always, of course, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Mm. And, but I suppose some of the techniques we've already talked about probably help us out a little bit there, right, in terms of preparing for that in advance, maybe? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it comes a bit back to the sort of trigger point. If you've pre-decided the factors that will help yep, you to right. make that decision, it could be de-risking, it could be changing asset class, but it could be on my manager. Actually, if I get the performance I want, that's it. They've done their job. I'll move on to another manager to do their job for me. I think, yeah, it's just, again, it's just protecting against them making a decision in the mm. moment, which you mentioned, Nikki, and just sort of setting out that framework that you can then stick to. Yeah, so giving you the clear triggers for change, but that also gives you the confidence to stick with it mm. if those triggers haven't been met. Yeah. And I suppose yeah. other triggers for managers could be things like team changes, business changes, mm. yeah. process changes. I suppose those, yeah. those are really the key ones that we see a lot with managers where you, you want to be clear about those in advance. Absolutely. And I think that also, that mm. gives you a really, really nice, simple way of monitoring your managers. It's very easy to look through reams yeah. of quarterly yeah. reporting from exactly. a manager every quarter. But actually, if you think, OK, well, I had five triggers and that's what I'm basing mm. my decision making on. I can use maybe a traffic light system even on those five triggers. And at a very quick glance, I can just see whether things are going as I think they should be or not. Yeah, I'm a massive fan of simple decision-making systems, right? They can often be a lot better than complicated ones. Absolutely. One thing we haven't yet come on to is loss aversion. For example, people are much more affected by losses than they are by gains. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You lose 5% and you're like, oh, the world's ended. You gain 5%, normal day. And I suppose we could think of quite a few ways where that actually affects in practice right I mean we were talking about managers a second ago and managers underperforming and I guess that's loss aversion really isn't it Mm. being triggered there when you've got a manager underperforming for a long time yeah it feeds back to the point Nikki Nikki already made in if a manager's three percent ahead of their target no one really asks me questions if the Mm. manager of my clients are that much ahead and they probably should be because if they're three percent behind their target or three percent ahead of their target they may not be doing what we think they're doing to generate those returns and that either way should be a flag I mean, I think another interesting angle on loss aversion, quite an interesting one, is I think sometimes it can lead us to take too little risk mm. overall because yeah. investors are too scared of, of little losses from one year to the next. And so it can be the case that you can bias towards strategies that are too conservative or managers that are at the conservative end of conservative strategies. Yeah. And it all sounds great until you get three, four, five years in the future and you look back and the performance has been in hindsight a little bit disappointing yeah. I think we have seen that in a few strategies here and there yeah. I think you can also see for example as part of your investments viewing them holistically is quite important because yeah, you might absolutely. have one or yeah. two managers return very negative returns and you might get too focused on that but actually overall your scheme might be positive say five percent which is great yeah yeah exactly yeah. and you hold different managers for different purposes yeah. you know yeah, you might have three it. equity managers and one of them is defensive and of course they're going to lag a really strong market and it's really really difficult to not look at mm. it and be disappointed yeah. but actually what you're holding them for is the recent experience we've had with equities falling yeah actually those managers are probably holding up better yeah exactly Let's imagine you're in a situation where you're looking at a new asset class. You've got three managers presenting. One of them is clearly more conservative in the way they manage the portfolio than the others. If you play that scenario out a number of times, I can imagine there's going to be a bias towards selecting that manager all the time. Whereas, as you say, yeah. Nikki, you then look mm. at the whole portfolio and you've suddenly got a lot of conservative approaches and all these mm. different strategies when actually sometimes you do want a manager to really go hard in certain strategies and, and take a bit of risk and um, you know, hopefully earn good returns for yeah. the investor. So I think you sort of see that if I think about my own pension, I'm a fair way from retirement at the moment and I'm investing in high risk and hopefully high returning investments. Yeah very easy for me to sort of I guess get distracted and worried looking at 
events today getting really distracted by those events and becoming maybe more risk averse and you know the loss aversion is kicking in and I'm thinking I should probably pay more in fees and go into a more balanced approach that's going to be limiting that risk but actually I've got plenty of years to make up any short-term losses but it's really really difficult for me to be thinking about the 60 year old version of myself being grateful that I stuck in equities now when there are so many sort of global risks that we see today and I guess then it's so important to keep that sort of target in mind and know what you what you want from your investments mm. and think about the time frame because it's very easy to get distracted yeah, by short-term yeah. well, noise. Exactly, so we just have to work that much harder to keep the long-term time frame front of mind, right? Otherwise, if, if we're not careful, we are just going to get driven by yeah. what's going on right now, isn't it? Yeah. That's the big issue. I think another thing investors are subject to is status quo. We found yeah. this with auto-enrollment. For example, if people yeah. are automatically put into schemes and they need to save 5 or 10% a year, they'll be in a much better place and giving them the option to enter schemes, which might result in them not having a very good pension. Yeah, yeah, and that's a massive topic, isn't it? The use of defaults and defaulting Mm. being enrolling and and starting saving is is sort of been viewed as a success really hasn't it certainly yeah. in the UK in terms of getting mm. more people saving and, and getting things going mm. um, I suppose it's it's a slightly more thoughtful use of the inertia that a lot of us experience in not doing stuff that if you can just place yourself in the way you want to go and then mm. not change things that's actually a really good start yeah yeah, yeah absolutely so Nikki we've kind of been all over the place in this discussion we've talked about lost version fear news flow I think it'd be quite helpful if you just remind us of the kind of three key takeaways that you had in your in your article. There are three things. One is a checklist to right. ensure that you've covered everything that you want when you're allocating to an asset class or mm-hmm. a long-term strategy. And there'll be things like things like what, for example, that you'd go through on that. How long do I want to stay invested in this asset class? Okay. Do mm-hmm. I understand the asset class okay. and its characteristics? Yeah, things like risk uh, return. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I guess that maybe that's when you also set out your framework for how you monitor. The manager, yeah. what do you expect from this manager or asset class and how do yeah. I make decisions yeah. in the future? So what drawdowns are reasonable, what drawdowns aren't? When mm. should I disinvest from this asset class? Sure, yeah. makes okay. sense. So that was number one. Number two was the pre-mortem. So right, yeah. whenever you invest in something, think of the longer term consequences of it. Think mm. where you'll be in, say, three years analysing its performance. Does it make rational sense to enter that investment now? Okay, Okay. sure. Yeah. And the other one? The other one was decision log. So clearly recording the reasons that you made an investment so that you can refer back to them over Mm. time and ensure that they're still valid in the current market environment. Okay, Okay. great. Sounds good. Okay, Nikki. So just as we're starting to wind up then, perhaps you can let the listeners know how to find you, where they can read your stuff online. So I'm on LCP's website, lcp.uk.com and on LinkedIn. And Nikki, do you have any recommendations for the readers? Articles, blogs, books, series, movies... I quite like Influence by Robert Cardini. Oh, yeah. That's okay. a good one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now it is time for our speed round, Nikki. So in the speed round, I'm going to ask you five different questions. And in each of them, the question is, which of the two do you back for the next decade? Ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay. First of all, active versus passive. Active. UK or overseas equity? UK. Economics versus behavioral science as a subject? Behavioral science. Twitter or LinkedIn? LinkedIn. The Rolling Stones versus Queen? Queen. That was a very quick answer. Good, yeah, up on your rock there. And finally, AI, threat or opportunity? Threat. Interesting. And Nikki, finally from me, what do you think is the single most underappreciated thing about investing? I think we've talked about this a lot today, but rebalancing. Right. Okay. And getting that right. Mm. Excellent. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for being on the show today. I think we've had a a really great discussion on all things behavioural. Absolutely. Thank Thank you. you. 
podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.